This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 125. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood and Chris Graham. Welcome back to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I am your host, Brian Hood, and I am here with a special guest, the owner of the online recording studio, Joe Wadsworth. How you doing, my friend? Hey, Brian. Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, stuck in self-isolation at the moment, so uh, trying to make the best of it. That's great. You're one of those British people that sounds smart no matter what you say. So you have that distinct advantage over me, someone born in Alabama <laughs> with my thick Southern accent. So I can't sound smart. I have to do double the work to sound just as smart. So for those who don't know Joe, Joe is the owner of the online recording studio, which is an online based recording studio with something like 30 audio engineers working under him. Is something like that, Joe? Is that right? Yeah. If I'm being totally honest, I don't know the exact number of people that we have on our books <laughs> at the moment. I probably should. But we have a team of producers and engineers and also session musicians. That's why it's, it's slightly more difficult to keep track of because a lot of our producers have their session players as well. So it's difficult to kind of gauge. But yeah, I'd say at least at least 30 people on so far. So this is a really intriguing business model to me for several reasons. One of the reasons is this is essentially an agency model. So my old roommate, friend of mine, Brandon, he has an agency called Media Whisper, and they handle all of the social media accounts for Live Nation. He has like 25 people working under him. And it's the exact same business model that you're doing, except with an online recording studio. I've never seen essentially what is a recording studio agency. So that in and of itself is interesting to me. The second reason this business model is interesting to me is because of what's going on in the world right now with the coronavirus. And this is a business that seems to be relatively virus resistant. And so last week on the podcast, we interviewed DK Waddell of LaunchPod Media, who has about 10 people working for him. They have 15 or so podcasts that they're producing right now in the business sector, and they're doing really well despite the coronavirus. And so I'm trying to do a series of interviews of coronavirus resistant business models. And Joe has one that I think is probably faring better than a lot of recording studios right now, especially if you're if you're doing in-person recording. So I wanted to get Joe here on the podcast to pick his brain on how his business works, what we can take away from it as audio engineers, maybe if we're shifting our business from in-person to online, and what we can do as far as audio engineers that are just sitting in our basements right now tinkering with plugins and stuff, how we can think bigger and beyond just the one-person home studio and perhaps uh, into scaling up their business to multiple engineers and multiple people involved. So Joe, can you give us a little overview of what exactly is the online recording studio? What do you offer? What Just give us kind of the rundown of that so people have a good idea for the rest of this episode what it is that you do. Absolutely. So essentially, the online recording studio, as you say, it is a sort of agency model. And we provide services for singer-songwriters uh, and producers as well who, for one reason or another, can't get into the studio or don't want to go into the studio. Which is a lot of people right now. Absolutely. Well, initially, those reasons were a lack of experience, maybe a lack of budget, lack of confidence, or just not really knowing how to go about it. And so what started is just very simply doing music production for people over the internet grew into something where we realized that there were a lot of other services that we could offer in terms of promotion, branding. Some people just want mixing and mastering, you know, which is something that did have a much bigger pre-existing demand for online the mixing and mastering thing but full production there was a real lack of any kind of structured model that people were doing now you've got things like sound better 
which is like an open marketplace, I suppose. But the thing with that is that, especially right now, now that we're all locked in at home, every single producer who sat in their bedroom is going on Sound Better. And that thing is becoming incredibly saturated with brand new people on there. And those sorts of things are really difficult to do because either you have to do projects for a pittance, you know, for no money, just to like get your ranking up, or you have to spend loads of money on it, which a lot of people don't have. But in terms of what we do, it it is a one-to-one, you work with a producer or you work with a designer, you work with a mixing and mastering engineer, and it's all done remotely. So you work on a video chat, you know, you send over a, a rough draft to one of our producers and we'll talk it through with you, develop those ideas and then get it to a point where we've taken care of recording all the instrumentation in our studios, in studio conditions with our session musicians. And then the artist just records their vocals at home and they send us that audio. We mix it all together. And yeah, so I I think we are one of the few remote recording agencies in the world currently. About what you were saying in terms of what's going on now with the whole COVID-19 thing, we've sort of accidentally created the solution to a problem that wasn't yet there just out of sort of a kind of luck in a way I think or just because we've tried to make it so that you can do it from home the situation now is that obviously everyone is stuck at home and we have seen that it has had a big impact on the number of people booking in so we are now looking to bring on more producers to the team to be able to handle the demand that we have because it really is it's good but it's it's a little bit intimidating because there's a lot of people coming in now going I wanted to do this stuff back in the day but now I've got however long off work so with the online recording studio you said you offer Obviously, recording, producing, mixing, mastering, those sorts of services. You also said you offer marketing services. What all services do you offer under the online recording studio? So we also offer branding. So we have full branding designers and developers. We offer social media management and assets design ad campaigns, Facebook and Instagram ad campaigns. We're looking into YouTube at the moment, but I think for us, we've spent the last couple of years getting really good with Instagram and Facebook. And so we like to stick to that rather than spreading ourselves too thin. We also offer coaching, one-to-one coaching. So I have a few coaching clients who I talk to about social media strategy. I talk to about how they can be reaching out for sync opportunities and things like that. Then we also have some people that we do coaching, like DAW coaching with. So we have some of our producers teach Logic or Ableton to younger people. And some old, actually, we've got some older people as well who at the moment are now wanting to kind of work out how to record a little bit at home. And really that progression of the services that we offer has just come out of starting with the production and recording, building that and growing that. And then one day a client being like, hey, do you guys do this? And us going, yeah, okay, sure. And then finding the right people to be able to deliver that thing. And, and it's really just grown based on what people have asked for. We've made very few assumptions in terms of adding new services because on the few times that we have made assumptions, they've always been wrong. And so we've just based everything that we're doing on what people are asking for. And so when an artist has said to us, hey, now that the song's recorded, what do I do? It seemed like, well, okay, we should be offering this support that carries on afterwards. So we'll put together an ad campaign, we'll do some branding, et cetera, et cetera. And so it really is kind of any service that, that singer-songwriters may need or, or home producers or artists, whatever. Um, we we kind of cater to everyone in that way. Can you give us an idea of what your target customer is? Do you target any specific niche that seems to be the predominant customer base or are you pretty much an all-around non-specific recording studio service? It's a very good question and one that we still are trying to answer sort of five years into the business. One of the things that all business courses or schools or whatever do is they say you know you got to really try and segment your audience into different people 
because everyone has different reasons for doing stuff. Everyone has different backgrounds and finances, et cetera, et cetera. You want to try and be as specific as possible with your customer. We have done that and we've put together, you know, customer personas, customer profiles. And actually what we found is that there are so many different kinds of people who come to work with us that it's actually easier to just kind of be as broad as possible and just have a sort of open door policy than try and individually target very, very specific people. The thing that unifies all of our customers, all of our artists is just the want to record music and songwriters. It can, I, one of the, the things that I love most about the job is that on a, on a Monday morning, I can have a call with an 18 year old girl from Texas who wants to sound like Taylor Swift. And then later in the afternoon, I have a call with a 65 year old Japanese man who wants to sound like Bruce Springsteen. You know, we've got these two people on opposite sides of the planet and trying to market to them in any other way than just you like songwriting is really difficult because they both essentially want the same thing and essentially for the same reasons as well. So our target customer is anyone who wants to record a song, basically, or anyone who wants to promote their music. This goes against everything we've really ever talked about on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we are big proponents on preaching that the, the riches are in the niches, whether you niche down by a specific service, which you guys haven't seemed to have done, or we talk about niching down by specific genres of music, which you also haven't seemed to really niche down to either. But despite that, you have built a sizable business with a lot of customers, presumably because you have a lot of engineers despite that. So I, I'm really looking forward to digging into this business and getting more details behind it. Cause I feel like our audience, a lot of our audience is in the position that you're in where they're trying to appeal to everyone. And the saying I've always said on the podcast is if you try to appeal to everyone, you will appeal to no one except in Joe Wadsworth's case. So <laughs> let's, let's move on here. So it's easy for people to hear that you have a, a pretty big business here. That's got a lot of moving parts in it. Can you give us a little bit of background before you even started this? What's your background as far as audio or did you have any business? Was, was it full business background or was it audio background? Which kind of camp do you come from? So I had no business background at all. I still don't really have any formal business training. I started the business. So I come from a very musical family. My dad is a theater actor. So he does a lot of stuff in the West End in London. And my mum was a, an actress. She now works as a kind of business coach, but she, from the age of, four me being four not her uh sat me down <laughs> at the piano every night and and you know made me do my practice and so i played the clarinet and the piano when i was younger and always was involved in musical stuff and always knew that i wanted to go into music production uh when i was in my teen years i really want i basically just wanted to be mark ronson because i thought he was the coolest guy in the world and i said right i'm going to start a record label and i'm going to be a music producer and then i went to study music production at Leeds College of Music. Now, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have chosen Leeds College of Music again because I didn't feel like the course was actually worth it. And I think that's something that I would pass on to any younger people, perhaps in your in your listeners, who are thinking about studying music production. I would say if you're thinking about doing a degree in production or anything in the arts, really, if you get to the end of your first or second year of doing that and you aren't already doing it professionally, in my personal opinion, I think you've wasted your money and I think you should do a degree that's more likely to get you a job because even though all of my producers are qualified in terms of having done music production degrees or, or masters, I've never asked to see those qualifications in a hiring process. I've asked to listen to their music. And so if you're a good producer or a good engineer, save yourself, well, £40,000 in the UK. I think it's a hell of a lot more in, uh, in the United States. We call it Soulfail University the specific one in Florida, 
is about $85,000 or 60 something thousand for the online degree. So that's something we've preached on the podcast a long time is to stay the hell away from that stuff. That is mad. It's a crazy amount of money. And for a lot of people, unfortunately, especially if you're going into music, which can be so unpredictable, you may never make that money back in a way that means that you're able to pay that whole thing. And, and I think that actually you've got to think early on, is this going to be worth my while in terms of what I'm going to get from it? When I was about 17, when it was like the time that you apply for university, I applied at two places. I applied at Leeds College of Music and a place in London called the Guildhall. Now, the Guildhall only takes four people a year and they have like thousands, thousands of people apply. And my mum, and in, in hindsight, I think she was doing this on purpose, but my mum said to me, you're never going to get into that school because you don't do enough practice and you don't do enough work. I realise now she was using such basic reverse psychology to get me to work harder that (laughs) at the time I felt like I was being really clever and be like, well, actually, I'm going to try really hard and get in. And I luckily was offered a place, but sort of out of an act of teenage defiance said to my mum, well, I'm not going to go. I've got in, but I'm going to go and go to Leeds College of Music instead. (laughs) It backfired in her face. (laughs) Yeah, in hindsight, it was a very, very reckless decision because... The Guildhall is an amazing, amazing place to study. And Leeds College of Music is pretty rubbish to go to, to be honest. It, the, <laughs> after my first year, I felt that the course was just not worth the money because I was already £12,000 down by then. And I just thought, this is silly. So I started the business when I was in my dorm, in my halls at university. When we first started, we were called My First Single. And it was me doing all of the production. And I, the reason we were called My First Single is because I was targeting just younger musicians, people who I felt like I was comfortable doing the music production for. And throughout that first year, I did this. And then I started to bring in other people who were in my halls and bring in other musicians. And that was always nice to kind of get different people in and then started to build a little mini sort of agency model within my university dorm. After a while, realized that actually there was a huge gap in the market for kind of bringing what I now see is a massive, massive pool of producers, home producers or producers who are just struggling to find as much work as they want. And singer songwriters, there are a million posts every single day with hashtag singer songwriter on Instagram. Every single day, there's a million. Wow. You know, it's astronomical numbers. And I just thought, why is there no one who's in the middle bringing these two people together? And I think that production generally is a thing that you do in isolation, especially while you're learning how to do it. A lot of our listeners are cave dwelling creatures that haven't seen the sun in six months. And that was before all the coronavirus stuff hit. It's just they haven't left their house. I'm a recovering troglodyte. So I'm the same type of person where I would sit in my studio for months on end without ever leaving. So that is a lot of our audience. And we're learning. We're learning. We're trying to recover from that. And now is not the time to recover because we can't go out and like talk to people. But well, this is, I suppose, an ideal situation for people who like to stay inside. It's all, you know, it's all coming up roses. But I think that what I found was that the majority of the production people that I was surrounded by were not naturally people people, which is the plural of people person. I've never said people people before, but I, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that, is, yeah, they, they, they weren't I think people that's people. Right. It sounds right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not just repeating the same words for emphasis. They, yeah. Um, but I think people persons. They're, they're not people. They weren't people persons, if that's better. And the thing that they needed was to be able to speak to artists or have that opportunity to be able to speak to artists. And then on the other side of that, I found that a lot of artists were posting songs of themselves on Instagram. But that was it. That was sort of the be all and end all of their plan was I'll get it up on Instagram and that's it. It's done. And so they maybe needed a bit of, talk, you know, a bit of explanation as to what their options actually were and how easy it could be to do it. 
And so very quickly, we changed the name from my first single to the online recording studio. The main reason, well, there are two reasons. One was we just wanted to grow up a little bit and also be a bit clearer about what we do. And the second reason is that with the name My First Single, a lot of people thought it was something to do with like a dating service. And (laughs) I I had to explain that to someone on more than one call that there was no dating element to it. And so I just thought, right, we need to change the name of this. This doesn't make any sense. Here's my new dating app idea. It's called Co-Write and Chill. Yeah, very nice. It's exactly what it sounds like. So we, we, changed the, uh, we changed the name to the online recording studio. I stopped doing any of the production stuff because I felt like I wanted to focus more on the sort of business side of things. And also the quality, because we then started approaching people who were much more experienced musicians. So either doing mixing and mastering for bands or for people who'd been around a bit longer and not just working with younger artists. We started to bring on professional producers, not just people who I was at uni with. And um, and yeah, then the team just kind of grew from there. And as I say, we kept adding services as and when we needed to. And that was nearly five years ago now. I would say the name changes when you officially launched this, I guess, because you kind of, that's when you started to figure out your business model and who you were going to be. So this was probably what, 2015, 2014? What year did you say, would you say that got started? 2015 was my first single. And then I, we officially became the online recording studio, I think either late 2016 or early 2017. Wow. So you guys have grown quickly. This is way faster of a timeline than I previously thought it would have been given where you are now. Well, it's it's actually, to be honest, it's faster than that even. I would say the first sort of year of being online recording studio, we were still trying to desperately work out how to be business people. I think that was it because, you know, having not had any real business training. So I dropped out of uni at the end of my first year because I had basically made back what I owed in uni fees. So I just thought, there's no point in staying here. Good decision. <laughs> yeah. So for about a year, we were just sort of treading water, not knowing what we were doing. And it's actually, I would say throughout 2019 is when the real change started to happen. So we quadrupled the size of our team during 2019. Um, as I say, we are looking to bring on some more people now. We'll have a link in our show notes of where people can go to do that. We'll talk about it towards the end of the episode as well, where they can go to apply as well. So what were you doing early on, let's just say the 2017, 2018, where you guys were kind of just struggling to get traction, which is, I'd say most businesses when they first open do not just instantly hit traction. They have to slowly figure out what's going to work, what's not going to work. What were you doing to build demand for the online recording studio early on? So when we were very early on, the first thing we did was work out, we knew that we were limited in terms of the number of staff that we had and the hours that we had available. Because I think that when you are starting up a business or there is a startup. I think there is a real temptation and something that I've certainly succumbed to in the past of trying to do everything. And so we were like, right, we're going to get big on YouTube. We're going to get big on Instagram. We're going to become Twitter influencers. We're going to get on TikTok wasn't even a thing then, but like, you know, we're going to get on Vine or whatever it was. I'm trying to remember what was big back then. But what that meant is that we were spreading ourselves way too thin. And so I said, very early on, right, we need to focus on one thing because right now we don't have a huge amount of money to do stuff. I funded the beginning of the business with a bit of my student loan. So like the maintenance loan that you get a bit of money from a great thing that we have here in the UK called the Prince's Trust, which is like a charity for young people to start businesses. So they'll give you a business loan that's like 0.5% interest or something like that, which we paid back within the first year. And then also my parents helped me out a little bit at the very beginning too. But Spreading yourself too thin is the biggest mistake I think I see people starting up this sort of thing make. And so we realized early on that for us, Instagram was our channel. 
And so all of our efforts went on to growing that Instagram, understanding and creating a system for Instagram where we could meet people and not be spamming people because I think Instagram is growing more and more spammy with every every day that passes. And so, yeah, th- those were the sort of early decisions that we made that I think meant that we were able to stay focused with stuff. And the challenges that we were facing really were lack of brand awareness, which when we changed the name to the online recording studio, that did make a big impact because there was no real mystery about what it is that we did. We've used the same yellow color for everything since we started. And so that's something that's quite distinctive in terms of people recognizing it as part of our brand. But the main thing that we realized, and actually it kind of came about as a money saving thing, was because we didn't have the time or the manpower to be able to put together loads of videos because you have to have so much content really available to be able to do stuff because we didn't have the time or the people to be able to do that. We had to come up with a solution that would mean that we could continue to put out a lot of content, but not have to spend ages creating it all. And so that's why if anyone looks at our Instagram now or our website, the vast majority of what you see on there is user generated content. So what we would do is we would get testimonials, we would get artists singing their songs, we would get, you know, this and that, and just make sure that our Instagram profile was full of people talking about us, talking about their experience, seeing different people from different places in the world, because all of these things are built on kind of social proof. And so if you see, it's like herd mentality. So if people see that there are other real people talking about it, That saves you having to do any of the selling yourself. It saves you having to create loads of content yourself. All we do is, you know, an artist will send us a video of them singing the song and we'll post it with their name on it. And that's a post. That's a day's social media sorted. And what that does for us is it shows that we're able to work with artists from anywhere in the world, shows that there's a real diverse mix of people that we have. And and really that was that has come out of the fact that we basically had we're on a shoestring budget to begin with and we're trying to find ways to save money. So for any of your listeners who are looking to kind of try and really get going with stuff at the moment, I would say try and get as much video content from your clients as possible and repost that, repurpose that content and also continue to use it. We still are sharing testimonials from three years ago as part of our ad campaigns that we run now. And so get stuff that you can keep using that isn't too specific, that's evergreen. This is this word evergreen that we keep hearing. That would be my recommendation. And I would say those were the biggest challenges we were facing, having no money and being spread too thin. And if you're a one-person operation, that's even worse. You know, I, I get it. it's much more difficult. Yeah, we call that the shiny object syndrome. And that's where it's really bad for podcast fans because they hear a different topic every week. And then so that's a new shiny object to go <laughs> after every single week. Yeah. So it is really difficult to find one thing that you plan to focus on and double down on those things. And I run three businesses right now. And so it's I'm just as bad as as anyone else at this where I have three different businesses that I have different strategies and tactics that I'm trying to implement for each of these three businesses. And so it is a real challenge to say, hey, I'm going to purposely ignore all of these opportunities that are out there and only focus on this one that I've identified as the best opportunity for my business in this moment. And that can change sometimes. Sometimes you'll be working on something and then all of a sudden COVID comes and takes over the world news and everyone's minds and everyone's stuck inside. And then you have to change what your focus is. But that's just the reality of business is being able to adapt to change. Absolutely. But how do you find being a sort of multi-business owner, how do you find the sort of, uh, is there like a translation between the three where if you suddenly have a breakthrough with one thing, you kind of think, okay, how can I now implement this into my other business? Or like, you know, you have a real brainwave and you're like, oh, okay, 
I can also apply this to the other two businesses as well. Do you find that that happens or is it that they are three very separate things? With the Six Figure Home Studio and FilePass, those are the two most similar businesses that share the same customer base. Sure. With my recording studio, very little translates to the other businesses and vice versa. So I've told people for years now, and I continue to believe this, you can have up to three businesses. And even when you have three businesses, you can grow one, you can maintain another, and one other one's going to slowly die off. (laughs) Fair enough. And that's what I've seen in my past. I've had multiple businesses since 2014. And so it's always been that sort of thing. And businesses or income streams have come and gone and, and different focuses, depending on what I'm into at the time, whether it's real estate or Airbnb or whether it's my recording studio or six figure home studio or podcast or file pass or whatever is out there right now. All of these things, some of them can be shared. Like if I get a customer for the six figure home studio, it's almost always going to be a customer for file pass or vice versa, but it's still difficult. So there's no perfect solution. Ideally, you would just have one business, but I'm too ADD for that. <laughs> Fair enough. Hey, I, <laughs> I think sometimes what's really nice, if you are someone who is quite creative and not necessarily just musically creative, I, that thing of, you know, being an architect, you know, of trying liking to build things. I think actually uh, taking a break from one business to look at another thing and still having to use those creative faculties that you have can be a really nice refreshing thing and can actually help you when you then go back to the other one to sort of have clarity and have cleared your mind up a little bit to then try out whatever it is that you wanted to try out on the other thing. Yep. So big picture, it works really well for two of my businesses doing that, bouncing back and forth. But there's still things that fall through the cracks when you do that, where emails back up, support, someone's waiting on you for something that they work for you. It's just it's difficult, but I actually wanted to go back. Actually, you talked about your Instagram strategy. This is something that's really appealing right now to anyone listening right now, because there is no in-person meetings in most places right now. You're not going out to shows. You are not taking someone to coffee or dinner or lunch or whatever to get to know them or to sell your services to them. Instagram, social media, maybe even advertising, which we might get to later on. These are things that are still relevant today in the environment that we're in. It sounds like your strategy is user-generated content. So your customers are creating videos. You're sharing those videos on your Instagram feed predominantly. And I assume people are coming to you. So inbound leads, meaning the leads that come to you. Is that most of your customer base, people that are DMing you or coming to your website, filling out forums or talking to you? Or are you doing any cold outreach or anything similar to that in order to generate leads for your business? So we do a little bit of cold outreach, just a couple of hours a day, just going through hashtags and, and reaching out to people. But I think that I've always been very careful to make sure that we're not spammy at all. And I think that's the thing. And and anyone who uses like an automation bot or anything like that, I mean, there's nothing worse than having a post on Instagram of you holding a guitar uh, that's just a photo and like getting a random comment being like, hey, this is such a great song. Send me a DM. And it's like, (laughs) what? This obviously doesn't make any sense. Um, And so I think we've, we've always wanted it to be a human, you know, it's always a human being talking to the other person on Instagram. So we do reach out a little bit and talk to people. But more than anything, it's not necessarily to do with trying to, it's not like a funnel per se, where we're trying to then convince someone. It's like a cold call that we then try and convince someone into purchase. It's more just, we reach out to people. We like to be really active in the community. And we have various groups online. We've got like this, this tours artist group on Facebook. And and actually what we like is building this community and everyone's sort of giving feedback to one another and stuff like that. So for us, it's more about adding more people to our community than actually trying to sell people. Because that most of the time when we if we speak to people, they're not ready to book in right away anyway. They want to see what we can do. And the vast majority, I would say in the high 80s in terms of percentage of, of what we get, 
are people who have known about us for a few months, sometimes a few years, have had a chance to see what we do and watch maybe a few people's projects come to life. And then they get in touch with us and say like, hey, how are you? You know, I've been watching you guys for a little bit and I'd like to try it out now. Can I try something small to begin with, which is what we always encourage people to do anyway. Um, So on the whole, it is people now coming to us directly. But when we first started, it was me doing like 10 hours a day outreach on Instagram, kind of trying to graft to get us up to the point where we're at now. You have to kind of do that, I think. I'm not in charge of of the outreach that gets done now. We have people in our team that take care of that. But the sort of, not necessarily script, but the kind of structure of the conversations that we have with people online that I've put together has come out of spending all of that time doing it when I was at university, just doing it for hours and hours and trying to work out how to have meaningful conversations with people on Instagram, not be spamming them and also not immediately seem like I was trying to sell something to them, even though at that time I was trying to sell something pretty much straight away. Now it's much more just about keeping the community open. So are you just having a conversational approach, just like talking about their music or what their goals are, or just basically you're just trying to start any sort of conversation that can go deeper so that you have some sort of meaningful conversation versus a surface level hey, I'm just doing this to get customers type of vibe. Absolutely. I think from experience of selling, I think that actually no one, no one logs on to Instagram to buy something. Do you know what I mean? You go on Amazon to buy something or you go on eBay to buy something. You don't go on Instagram because you're looking to make a purchase. What do you mean, Joe? I usually log on Instagram just to look at the ads and buy things. That's how I shop. <laughs> well, you're perfect to target to. I need to get some data from you so that I can target you go. more yeah, effectively. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if only that were everyone. Yeah. But actually, people aren't on there to make a purchase. And I read a really, really interesting book last year called Contagious, which is seven, I think it's the seven pillars of, of things that make things go viral. It was to do with virality and stuff online. And I'd absolutely recommend that as a, as a book to read. I can't remember the name of the author. But it was a really, really interesting book. And he was talking about social proof and about how people kind of have this herd mentality and, and want to do this sort of thing and actually aren't really looking to buy. They want to be entertained. They want to be told a story. They want to be validated. And our approach to talking to people is always take a genuine interest in what they're doing. And I think what's nice is that now that we do have our, our artist groups on Facebook, a lot of people who follow us on Instagram, join those groups and post music and get sort of feedback and stuff. And that very naturally grows into a conversation about their music and then what we could do for it. And it's the same with the sort of minimal outreach strategy that we do on Instagram. We will, if we find a video of someone that we like and we think that we could help, we'll comment and be like, hey, this sounds great. You know, I really like the sound of this. Where can I hear more of your music? And then maybe go and have a listen to their SoundCloud or their Spotify. And, you know, it takes time. You can't automate a genuine interaction with someone. And I think perhaps we might have grown faster as a business if we'd looked at automation tools and things like that. But I think that the fact that there's always a person on the other end of the phone or the other end of the Instagram chat makes a big difference to people. And so, yeah, we'll talk in the comments for a little bit of of someone's post and ask them about their influences or whatever, and just to have a genuine conversation based on what they've put. And then if we feel like there's someone who maybe would benefit from joining one of our groups or or even our services, we just say, hey, you know, send us a DM and we can have a little bit of a chat more. But it's very, very low pressure. We're not pushy 
sort of sales people at all. I hate getting phone calls from people who are really trying to sell me something really hard and also who give a price and then within five minutes have reduced that price by 80%. If they say it's $100 and you say no and they say, okay, $50 and you go no and they say, okay, $20. It's like, well, I now know that you were trying to add potentially $80 on top of what you actually needed to charge. And so it's an even bigger no now. So we're always, when we talk to people, say... If this is right for you, check it out. Book in some time to talk if you'd like to. But, you know, if, once you're ready, we'll be here. No pressure. Please do keep in touch. And I think just, it sounds very British, but that thing of just having nice manners and, you know, being very polite to people, I think goes a long way. And as you said, having a British accent does make people think that you're smarter than you are. It's true. That's just science. So anyone that's listened to this podcast for a while, and especially if you're a student of the Profitable Producer course, a lot of what he's talking about here as far as his Instagram outreach is nothing surprising. It is something we've preached for a long time, which is add value. In your conversations, always add value. Think about what you can do for the customer, not trying to get the customer to pay you money. And although in the back of our minds, all of us want them as customers, we still have to take the long-term approach of how can we add value, add value, add value in every phase of the customer journey because they have their own customer journey, whether they're songwriting or they're in pre-production or they're currently producing music or they're in pre-release phase or post-release phase and touring or whatever phase they're in, there's always some way you can add value to them. And I think Joe and his team have probably done a really good job of having this approach through Instagram specifically. When it comes to your team, you, you talked about your team being in charge of the outreach now. Talk about the process of you handing that off. How did you decide, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand these conversations off to my team now. How did you decide how they're going to approach it? How do you decide, do they have KPIs or key performance indicators that you track as far as what they're liable to do or what they're supposed to do every week? Like, Talk about that process a little bit because I think with a business as large as yours, there has to be systems involved. And I'd love to start diving into some of those systems now because all of our listeners right now, they are in the boat where systems are going to help keep them focused on what actually matters in the business because you start systemizing these other parts of your business that are, I wouldn't say less important. They're just things that anyone else can do if you train them correctly. Whereas you as the business owner, you, Joe, or me, Brian, we need to focus on the things that only we can focus on as the business owner and cold outreach or community uh, engagement or whatever you want to call it that sort of stuff is very systemizable. Can you talk about specifically handing off that part of your business? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the moment when I knew it was time to do that was actually, to be honest, there wasn't one time when I did it because I've, come, I've gone back to it a few times because the initial sort of strategy that we used when we started, we've reduced because it is a little bit, it was a bit spammy. The stuff we were doing in like 2016, 2017, it was kind of copy and pasting essentially the same conversation over and over. And although that was effective, my feeling was that for anyone who wasn't the actual person that we were talking to, because you've got to think about it, you know, although we were commenting on people's posts and yes, we might have converted the person whose post we commented on as a, into a sale, I felt like anyone who was scrolling through that same hashtag playlist or hashtag feed that we were going through and finding videos on would see us. If they were a singer-songwriter, they'd go, well, that's a really spammy account because they're basically having the same conversation over and over. And I think once the sort of leads that the artists that were just directly getting in touch with us as opposed to people we'd reached out to was more over, I think, a two or three month period than the amount of people that we got through reaching out to people directly that's when I started to reduce the number of hours that was being done on that. I drew a kind of mind map, semi script sort of thing that was sort of a, 
a loose structure of how we want those conversations to go and how we can best deliver value to people in those conversations, be it through giving advice on what to buy in terms of equipment, give it a, being advice on how to promote yourselves or whatever. But I think that thing that you were mentioning about giving value, that was a huge part of it because we wanted to understand how we could make sure that what we were doing and what we were putting out as, as a company was helping people. And once they saw that we could help them, they would then come back to us as opposed to us showing them what we could sell them and then going, no, I don't want this. And that being the end of the conversation. And I think that something that I would absolutely recommend is trying to build communities over trying to go for individual sales, especially now when social media is going to be at the forefront of all of this stuff. You've got to have a community. You've got to have people. You know, you have your podcast, for example, Brian. Everyone listens to this. And so you have a community of people who you can engage with and talk to. And that's a real communal aspect to it. And that's what people want. That's what social media is good at. There's a lot of stuff that it's bad at, but that's what it's good at when it's done properly and managed properly. And so I would say to any producers or engineers who are looking at trying to do something similar, I would say focus on community because the individual outreach strategy that we used is very, very minimal now and something that we don't do a huge amount on. In terms of sending that off, it was this mind map. I gave it to a couple of different people in the team and tried them out and said, all right, have a go and see how you do on this. And there were a couple of people who I felt were particularly good. And what was the most interesting thing was actually the person who I thought was going to be the best person because they're an excellent salesman was not suitable for the outreach that we were doing because they had that real sales instinct. Was it ABC, always be closing? It's one of those like, one of those phrases that you hear. I thought they would be the perfect person for it, but because they were so keen on going for the sale as opposed to trying to create a meaningful connection or a meaningful relationship with someone actually it ended up being someone who had no background in sales who was just a really nice person and just great to talk to and someone who could talk to anyone and we found that actually just keeping people engaged through conversation is the best sale that always be closing thing might be true if you're selling something that is like a one-off over the phone or like a I don't know if, if someone's selling things door to door fine or always be closing but actually I think that for what we're doing for music, there's so much personality that goes tied into the product and the service of what it is that we're doing that really you just want the person to know and trust you. And then if they want to work on something, they'll work on something with you. And if they don't, they don't. But I don't think you should try and force it too hard. I just think you need to demonstrate, as you said quite rightly, Brian, that you have this value and that you can do what you're doing. And through engaging people in genuine conversation, that brings them onto our profile. They look at some of this content that we have. They hear some examples of our work and then they put two and two together in their head and they go, okay, yeah, actually I want to do this. And that's when they'll come to us. And that usually takes a few months. Our sort of cycle of first meeting someone to finishing a project with them can be several years. Yeah, it does take time. I like how you talked about the always be closing thing is something that is not true in our industry. And I would highly agree with that. Here's the deal with our potential customers as producers or mixing engineers or whatever you do, there is an element of our own souls in the music that they create. And if all you do is approach with sales, 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 sales in mind, that's just going to put them off. When you mix a traditional salesman, but which by the way, Joe, you talked about how people call you all the time. Isn't it interesting how all salespeople have this specific voice they use yeah. and how it's so easy to spot? It's the same thing on Instagram. If you're just going straight for the sell or any medium, it just puts people off. And I think with what we're doing, we have to take the long-term approach. And there's a couple of reasons for this. And Joe's the guest here, so I'm not going to go too long on this, but it's just worth kind of reiterating for people. Really, 
we can take a long-term relationship-focused approach because people want to hire people that they know, like, and trust, especially in our industry. And selling someone on your services does not build trust, does not allow them to get to know you. It does not make them like you. It sure as hell doesn't make them like you. But if you focus on the actual genuine relationship in the community aspect where you talked about, Joe, building a community, that helps build a relationship so they get to know you. That helps build trust. And that makes them like you because you're adding value to their lives as opposed to just always be closing, which is just focused on one singular thing, which is the sell. If you focus only on the sell, you will not get it. If you focus only on the relationship, surprisingly, you will get the sell. The other reason that you can focus on the long-term approach is because the customer lifetime value, the CLV, LTV, the lifetime value, sorry, that's the technical term. Lifetime value in our industry is actually pretty high because people tend to create music a lot. They don't really stop creating music. And so if you're their go-to person, if the online recording studio is the go-to studio I'm going to work with as a musician because I've gotten to know Joe and his team and I like him and his team and I trust them and I know they're going to do a good job in the music. Then over the next few years, as I'm writing and recording music at home, I'm going to send it to them in the mix or I'm going to trust that they're going to make good decisions, which means every single time I'm, I have money and have music, I'm going to pay it to Joe. And so again, lifetime value of a few genuine conversations on Instagram could be thousands or over $10,000 through the lifetime of that one customer. So it really adds up. Absolutely. That's bang on. And I think that approach of slow and steady, but genuine relationships is one of the things that has been a real, really important to me and something that I really work with on the producers is making sure that personal relationship is at the heart of everything. Because in terms of like our hiring process, I know that if you're in, if you've come in for an interview, I know that you can do the musical bit of it. That's how you get your interview. The bit where we have the most trouble is finding people, as I said at the beginning, you know, people who are music producers are sort of solo cave dwelling, you know, DAW loving people who spend all their time just getting that snare to sound just right, but at the cost of not going out and playing soccer with their friends. I just want to say it was really difficult for me to say soccer then because we call it football and I realize your audience is American, but that was, that was, yes, for you. They, we have a lot of UK, but also soccer was, uh, the term soccer was originated in the UK. So I just want to throw that out there. Was it really? I didn't know that. Look at the history of it. It's interesting. So, <laughs> sorry, I lost my train of thought. What was, what was it <laughs> sorry, I just threw the curveball at you there. Yeah, I've gone all Downton Abbey in my head. I've, I've forgotten where we were at with stuff. So what we found is that if, yeah, if you're coming in for an interview, I know that you can do the musical bit, but that bit of having the ability to create a long lasting relationship is something that is difficult to teach. I think some people can just do it very naturally and be very genuine and, and understand that trust isn't really something that you can force with someone else. You can do what you can to demonstrate the value that you have and not do anything that would show that you are untrustworthy. But actually trust is something that someone has to develop themselves about you. And the more that you try and say, trust me, the less someone is going to trust you. There were two things that you were mentioning before. And that one of the things I was thinking was that, that thing about trust. But the other thing, in addition to the thing with trust, is when you are trying to add value to people's service, to, to what you're offering people, know your value as well. Because I think we spent a few years way undercharging what we were doing and being so grateful that anyone would even consider coming to work with us that we were willing to sort of bend over backwards for the customer. And what we found is that we thought this would lead to us getting more customers or that customers would stick with us longer because we basically just said yes to everything. And actually what this meant was that sometimes the tracks that we worked on, we weren't really that happy with the finished product because someone who wasn't hugely experienced in production was calling the shots and we were just going, yep, 
yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full, sir. Absolutely. Like, you know, what can we do? But what we realized very quickly was that people have come to us because of the expertise of the production team. They want to be told what's the right and wrong way to do things, what, what, you know, how we can do this properly. And so if you are someone who is able to give them that thing, to give them that information, you hold the keys to the kingdom. And so you don't need to go, okay, well, I'll slash my prices in half and it's unlimited drafts forever just so that you can get a customer in because actually that's not worth your time. It's not worth your money. It's not worth your effort because realistically trying to get someone to go from spending $50 to spending $500 is a lot more difficult than trying to start someone off at $500 and then getting that one person to pay $500 because you know that that's how much your time should be worth. Now, that's not to say that there aren't a few times when you do need to sort of graft and you have to maybe reduce your fees slightly or whatever just to try and get something. But one thing that I see amateur producers doing, not necessarily amateurs, but inexperienced, shall we say, producers doing again and again is just bending over backwards and thinking that they're so grateful that they've got this work from someone that they'll do whatever. And actually, that can be a really bad thing because if someone came around to fix your car, for example... And they went, you went, actually, do you mind just connecting that wire to that one instead? I think that might work a bit better. And they know that that's wrong, but they go, okay, yeah, yeah, just because they wanted to do it. You're driving at 100 miles an hour down the motorway and all your wheels fall off. That's not ideal. And that's happened because they didn't say to you, you actually shouldn't connect those two wires because the wheels will fall off if you go above 60 miles an hour. And that's the same with music production. They want to know the skills that you have. And so make sure that you are valuing them correctly because you will save yourself and take it from someone who who didn't do that, you will save yourself a lot of stress and a lot of time and also be able to work with clients who will treat you with more respect. And actually that leads to a much more conducive relationship for making great music and people who will want to keep working with you. Now we have artists who started working with us when we were still called My First Single, still working with us today. And that's because of the fact that we don't push hard to sell them stuff. They tell us what they want and we say, okay, this is how much it's going to be. We don't say, right, we're going to be doing this and this is for you. And this is what you have to buy. And I think people can tell whether or not you're trying to sell them something or whether you're trying to explain to them that something that would be really good for them, but it does come at a price. Because those are two very different things. One thing I would love to mention is, although I, I did say I haven't had any sort of formal business training with stuff, what another book that was really, really useful for me was a book called The Way of the Wolf. And it's by Jordan Belfort, the guy who Wolf of Wall Street is based on. Yeah, familiar with him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think we all know his work to some degree. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But he went from being whatever he was then, sort of drug-addled, finance-broking person. You know, I, I don't even really understand what he did. But he is now the highest paid sales trainer on the planet, I think. And he teaches people how to do sales because he's like a naturally incredible salesperson. And I read his book and then I listened to it on Audible being narrated by him, which was amazing. And he talks about these three things whenever you're trying to sell to someone. You have to draw three lines on a piece of paper and each three lines is a scale from one to ten. And they're, they're representative of how much the person that you're talking to trusts you, how much the person trusts your business and how much they trust the service that you're trying to sell them. And throughout your conversation of talking to them, what you should be doing is trying to get them from a one as close to a 10 on all three of these things. Now, that's for an over-the-phone sales call. And so with us, that's extended over a number of months. That's not happening in one conversation. That's happening over a number of months, and we're trying to build on those three tenets. The trust that they have in us as individuals, what they have in the business, and the trust they have in the service. 
And if you look at any of our marketing and any, in my opinion, marketing that is successful, it shows those three things and makes you feel those three things. So for people who are kind of trying to work out how can I start making money from doing this sort of thing, I would say you have to think about it from the artist's perspective and how they view you. And if you're coming in with a, this is my sale and this costs this much, you've not demonstrated anything other than the fact that you want money from them. And so that's a real amateurish kind of mistake that people make, I think, is trying to go for that sell too much. But yeah, I would totally recommend that book to your listeners. We'll have that book as well as all the other resources and books we mentioned in this podcast at the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash 125. That's episode 125. I love that analogy. Actually, two that you just mentioned here. One was the three lines thing. I've never heard anyone talk about that. And I feel like our audience, some people just had their minds blown because they're not thinking through their interactions with their clients that way. And and I've never heard it put into such an easy to digest form where you're talking about. And here's the other thing is you said it's, it's instead of one single phone call, this is done over months and months through social media and through every interaction you have and every interaction they have with your business. That actually takes a ton of the pressure off. You're not trying to fit all of this in, in a 10 to 20 to 30 minute phone call. You have plenty of time. Any chance you get, you can increase the score on one of those three lines. The other analogy that I love that you use that I've never heard anyone articulate so well is that whole car mechanic thing where it is our job to make sure that they do not destroy their own music. And for us to bend over backwards and do literally anything for our customer at the detriment of their own music is actually doing them a disservice. And I feel like you put it in a perfect way with the wheels falling off the car. That is so easy for people to let happen because they're so desperate for the work. And what that really does is it it destroys the trust you could have had with your customer long-term so that it hurts the overall long-term lifetime value of that customer. Whereas when you push back, when you need to push back, in the example you gave, this wire does not need to be attached to this wire. When you push back, although they may not like it in the moment, long-term when they realize that you had their best interests at heart, they're going to trust you again and again and again every single time they're ready to hire somebody in the studio. So these are very important to point out. You just info dumped a lot of great knowledge bombs <laughs> on our audience, and I wanted to make sure I pointed those out. Joe, I know we're running a little late on time here. I do want to talk about some of the tools you use in your business, if you have a, a little bit of time here, because you have a lot of moving pieces. You have a lot of people working for you, a lot of different aspects to all tie together. And we actually met because you were looking at FilePass for implementing into your business as well, obviously because of the way FilePass centralizes revisions and allows people to do timestamp comments and all that. But I'd love to hear the nerdy term is tech stack, but <laughs> for our audience, because people don't talk like that in real life, what tools, software or otherwise, do you use in your business with the online recording studio? Okay, so it's a pretty hefty list of things that we have at the moment. So I think the first thing is for Instagram, we use three separate tools. Actually, so if I, I'll, I'll blanket sort of social media, we use three separate tools. The first is IGDM, which is a desktop application that just means that you can have your Instagram inbox on your computer as opposed to having to do it on your phone. You can also save replies or quick replies or whatever so that if there are bits of your conversations that you're having that are repetitive, you don't have to type them again and again. That's the first thing I use, IGDM Pro. I think it's about $12 or something like that online. It's really cheap, but really good if you don't like to always be jumping between devices. We use Sprout Social for all of our social media marketing stuff. And then we use Later for Instagram, just because we find that we like the interface more for that. In terms of the operations of actually running the business, we use... A few tools. So we use Trello to track all of the projects. So that's your project management tool is Trello. Yeah. Trello is what we use for everything. I was a 
bit of a, a novice when it came to Trello. And then one of our producers, Marcus, came to me and said, you realize that we've had Trello for like two years and there's so many things on it that we're not using. And like we're basically just, it's like we've logged on for the first time. And he set up this whole incredible process now that means that we're able to track the progress of each individual track. Other people can chip in and give feedback, other producers on the team. This all happens just on our side. So the artist doesn't see this stuff. We track them through that whole workflow and we have things that are automated in terms of triggers for letting you know when you're coming up to a deadline of when something has to be handed in or different bits that we ask, you know, whether it's videos of them singing or a testimonial video or whatever, we can track it all on there. And also, I think the reason that we first got in touch with you about FilePass was that we kind of wanted to create something that would be more two-way so that it would be client-facing as well as stuff that we could use in our back end. And the big thing that although our workflow does allow for the flexibility within a project because no two projects are the same what it doesn't do is get rid of the bit that we don't have control over and the bit that we don't have control over is the stuff that the artist does we don't have control over the sort of emails that they send really we don't have control over how they want to give their feedback we do say please don't send us a massive long email that isn't split up into bullet points but some people particularly if they're not english isn't their first language which is a lot of people that we work with Sometimes you're just going to get a big essay of notes that doesn't really make sense. But the thing with FilePass that was so great was this timestamp thing. And that's something that we're really keen to be looking at how we can implement because that just makes that process of giving feedback so simple. That is the thing that gets in the way is waiting for feedback and waiting for vocals. Those are our two things that slow us down. But Trello is excellent for that. I'm now being advertised Monday a lot as well. Monday.com. People say this is very good. But honestly... We've had Trello for three years. It took me a long time to learn how to use it and I'm not going to transfer everything <laughs> over. If it works, it works fine. I have no issues with it at the moment. So we use that and then we use HubSpot for all of our stuff that's like email marketing plus our meetings so that people can book in meetings with all of our production team individually. They all have their own meetings links, which then tie into our contact, like our CRM, our contact management system for everyone that we work with. And so it is all tied together. And Trello is using uh, Zapier or Z Zapier. I, I never know how to say it. That ties into HubSpot with Trello. And then we use Slack to communicate internally as a team. Those are the big ones, really. Uh, and I would say that Trello is the one that I, I just love it. It makes organizing projects so easy. And if you're someone who is not necessarily particularly organized, like myself, it's an absolute godsend because it really is useful and really does help you to visualize all of the projects that you have to do. That's the thing that I've always struggled with is not being able to see it all in front of me. You know, I'm certainly one who likes to stick loads of post-its up on the wall, but Trello just basically means you can do that on your computer and it saves you having to peel the paint off your walls and repaint your walls every six months because you've pulled off and chipped the paint everywhere. We use Trello for this podcast as well. We don't use it. We don't have a lot of moving parts with the podcast. It's pretty simple as far as just moving different cards around for each episode. But I, I would love to see your setup for online recording studio because I imagine that's a very in-depth process. There's a, a mastering engineer named Mike Collision, Collagian, I can never say his last name correctly, who has one of the most insane Trello setups for his mastering business where it's automated with Zapier. When certain emails go out, it moves cards around. When his CRM is updated, it moves cards around. When files get uploaded, it moves cards around. It's like insane, all of the automation you can have set up with that. So if our audience does not know what Zapier is, some people call it Zapier, by the way, Z-A-P-I-E-R. Since the actual actions that are taken are called Zaps, I've always called it Zapier, but you know what? We can leave it open to argument and that's fine. 
if anyone in our audience has not used Zapier, it is an incredible tool for, for automating a lot of uh, moving parts between apps specifically. And then HubSpot, you said you use it for the CRM. Is there? An, I know HubSpot has a whole ecosystem of tools. What do you use besides their CRM? Everything. Our website is hosted on HubSpot. So any new pages that we build, any landing pages, anything like that are all on HubSpot. Any email campaigns, our blog automation, internal automations as well. So my co-founder for FilePass, his other company is called Soundstripe and they're big company, 60 plus employees funded, venture capitalists funded, all that stuff. They use HubSpot for everything and they love it. He wants to incorporate it for FilePass. We're not quite there yet because we're still a relatively new company, but I'd love for you to talk to our audience about the costs involved with a tool like that, because I know the pricing behind HubSpot. I know it is not cheap. I know it's quite expensive, especially compared to some other tools. What would you say to our audience when they're looking at tools, evaluating tools, and all they see is price without considering the value that the tool gives you? How much stock do you put into the price versus value equation? That's a really, really good question. I think with HubSpot, had we come at it from just buying it new, we wouldn't be using it now. What's great is that a lot of these businesses, and this is something that you have to do your own research for, a lot of these businesses, especially things like HubSpot that are really focused on growth and businesses and, and helping startups and all that sort of stuff, often have startup programs or discounts or things like that. And so when we used HubSpot, the first year that we used it, we used it at a 90% discount. Yeah, I think it's about £2,000 a month. And we still don't pay that. So we're now three years on and we're still getting it at like a 65% discount. And that's literally just come off the fact that we asked. We just said, look, this is a crazy amount of money. There's still only like two of us in the team at this point in terms of the people who are actually going to be using HubSpot because the producers don't use it for anything other than booking meetings. And it wouldn't have been worthwhile. Honestly, I still don't think that paying two grand a month for it is worthwhile because there are ways that you can do all of the stuff that we do with multiple tools. It's just nice having them all in one place. And I think as soon as they say to us, it's going to be two grand to keep using it, we might look elsewhere and try and find another way to do it. But for anyone who is registered as a business, as opposed to just self-employed, it's definitely worth looking at their startup program, because if you are quite unique in what you do now, we were quite unique because I think then and even now, one of the few people who kind of do what we do in the way that we do it, they were very interested in it. And so I think that if you have a good niche of what you're doing, they'll sign you up in a heartbeat because they want really interesting, diverse businesses because, and this is where the user generated content comes back into it. They will then ask you to make a video talking about how great HubSpot is and the weirder your business, the better it makes them look. And for us music weirdos, they love all that sort of stuff because they're all very sort of corporate shirt and tie people who think of anyone who can play the piano as Billy Joel. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Not Billy Joel. He's the least rock and roll person. I can't believe he was the person who came to mind. Keith Richards. He's a guitarist. But yeah, anyone who does music is like in the Rolling Stones. That's as current as I can be with my music references. <laughs> I'm not That's a thousand great. years old, just to be clear. The reason I wanted to ask that is because so many people, when they start looking at tools, especially a CRM is a good example of how much value a CRM brings your business. And then they see a price tag, any price tag, they choose their CRM only because there's a free option out there or something like that. And I feel like, people are putting too much stock into the cost versus the value. And if you didn't have HubSpot, you could still probably couple together some stuff, but it's still going to cost you money. And the amount of value these tools bring to your business allows you to do what you're doing, which is have as many people as you have in your business to bring the income that you have in your business. Joe, does the online recording studio do any sort of paid advertising? We do a little bit. Um, we do Google ads. So we've got 
certain keywords that we rank for. But luckily, and this was, again, part of the reason that we named the company the Online Recording Studio is because if you search for an online recording studio, we come up pretty high in the rankings just because it's our name. So it's, it's like the post office. They were very clever because they're a post office and that's also the name of their company. So if you search for a post office, they'll be the first one to come up. So that we don't have to do too much on. But also because we're in such a kind of early adoption phase for online music production, which I think we'll have to now that COVID-19, you know, self-isolation is happening, uh, that adoption phase is going to have a very, very steep incline now because people are now having to work out how we do this whole thing online but because up until now it's still been only people really knowing that this exists as a concept searching for it on google that's not been a huge place for us to get business it hasn't really been i mean we we do get people coming through there but instagram for us is the big one now occasionally i will promote a post but what we've got is a really really lovely group of musicians who we've worked with i would say on the whole we've only ever worked with really really nice people who when they're happy with what they're doing have been willing to advocate for us and post all sorts of stuff here and there. We occasionally post and promote with some money behind them, testimonials, occasionally before and afters, things like that. But really, I mean, we don't spend that much. We probably only spend about $300 a month on advertising. It really is low because the the level of organic I guess, lead generation, if you want to call it that, is so high. We don't spend that much money on advertising, which means that we can focus that money more on things internally that will make us more efficient at what we're doing, which has been really nice. I know that story ads have been something that have been really effective for us. But actually, in our advertising, not only are we having to sort of show what we do, we're also having to explain the concept. And you have basically 30 seconds to explain it is possible to record a song online and get really high quality production and work with a producer and get all of these things done. And But even just by how quickly I had to speak there, that's not very engaging as an ad. So for us, we're still kind of waiting for people to see it as a viable option and know about it so that our ads don't necessarily have to be about education. They can just be about, hey, we're the best people to do the thing that you already know exists. And so I would say... The only time that we've seen success with ads that we've been running haven't been ads that we've run for our own company. It's it's ad campaigns that we've run for artists because for musicians, Instagram ads are amazing and so cheap as well. Instagram and YouTube particularly are really, really cheap. You can be paying 1p, 2p or one cent, two cents per stream or per swipe on your thing, sending someone to your streaming or wherever it may be. But for production purposes, we're still trying to crack the code of how to advertise that effectively. We still haven't got there yet, but it's, it's something that we're looking at. What would you say your top two lead sources are right now? Would you say word of mouth, then Instagram outreach or conversations, or would you say it's the other way around or something else altogether? Well, the top two are probably Instagram and our website. And the reason that those are the top two is because they are pretty much the only two. We've tried to limit and just be good at a few things as opposed to trying to spread too thin. And it's only now really that we're looking more at Twitter and we're looking at Facebook because our customers have always hung out on Instagram. And so that's where we get the majority of our business from. It is through Instagram. But with those website visitors, are they coming from Instagram because of conversations you had clicking through your bio? Or are they coming because they heard about you through word of mouth from one of their friends? To be honest, I would say about 80% coming through Instagram to the site. I couldn't say in terms of whether those are people that we've reached out to or have reached out to us or have come through word of mouth. What I would say is that almost everyone that we do work with says, I did reach out to a few of your artists 
I, you know, I knew about you guys already, but then I reached out to a few of your artists and asked them about their experience and they had really good things to say, which is always really nice. And so often we give, if someone comes to us on the, someone else's recommendation, we will repay that sort of, uh, that kindness that we've been given by that artist in some form or another, be it a free instrument on their next production or, or some discount or something like that. And so, you know, I think rewarding people for helping you is something that's really important, but Instagram really is the main thing for us. And it's interesting. We've talked quite a lot about how the sort of timeline of things is slower. And I think that right now everyone is panicking and a lot of businesses, be they music businesses or not, are going, how on earth do we do this online? How do we now pivot our entire business to be able to ride this out? Because, I mean, if you work in travel, it's gone. Do you work in the arts or theater, anything that's live, that's gone for the foreseeable future. And so there are very few businesses that are able to, unless you sell a physical product, but if you're something that has to be tried on in store, people can't come in and do that. But we're fortunate in the fact that we're not having to adapt. For us, it's just business as usual. And so I think now what we're seeing is that more and more people, especially the last few days, are going and researching. And so the number of people who come through Instagram versus the number of people who find us just online, it is sort of equalizing because people are now starting to search for that thing. Yeah, I think that's one of the unintended benefits of the situation we're in right now is just you have the right business model at the right time. And as unfortunate as it is for a lot of businesses, people are scrambling right now. And I feel like you have set up the perfect business in the audio world for weathering the storm. One thing that stands out to me, I think that you do better than most people that's worth bringing up here is your sales material on your website or how you convert a stranger into a customer. Now, there is so much that goes into selling a customer on your services. We talked a lot about it through the conversations you've had on Instagram, the social proof through having people have, uh, what is it, user-generated content, through having genuine conversations with people, through having good referrals, word of mouth. But still, when a stranger comes to your website, no matter how much they know about you, you still have a lot to explain on your website. And I think you do a great job of that. And I'd love for you to talk through some of the things that you do to help turn a stranger into customer. And just for one example of many is the live chat. The first thing I'm greeted with when I come to your site is, hey, I'm Joe. I'd love to help you or whatever your, your little live chat bubble that comes up there. These are all tools that people can incorporate. What are some of the things that you do specifically on your site to help turn a stranger or someone that kind of knows about you into a customer? So I think it comes back to those things that we were talking about before, about offering value before you know, the, the, the message that you get when you first come onto the site is, I think, depending on who is on the chat on that day, it'll be, hey, I'm so-and-so. So it may say, hey, I'm Joe. Thanks for joining us. How can I help? And the first thing there is that it's an open question. So it's not a yes or no question. I think whenever you're talking to people within a sales context, try and avoid yes or no questions until the very end when you just want to get them to say yes a bunch of times. A question like, you know, what are you looking for today? Or what are you hoping to achieve with your music? And we try a few different ones and they have varying levels of success. But I think when you give someone an opportunity to basically tell you what they want or what they're hoping for, you can then give them a really tailored response. And if you are able to have the time to be available on a live chat, and I know that now our site's on HubSpot, but I know that if you have a WordPress site or something like that, there are third party plugins that you can use that mean that you can have that live chat on your phone. So you can be either whether you hook it up to Slack or WhatsApp or something like that, or Facebook Messenger, you can be able to do that. And I think that taking each artist as an individual, understanding specifically what they want, and then being able to say, okay, well, here are some of the things that we offer that will suit that. Would you like to speak to someone in person about it? And I think getting someone to then 
booking a consultation to talk is much easier when they've already spoken to someone on your chat because I don't know, people don't really want to talk to people unless there's a reason for it. You don't really want to talk to strangers unless you have a reason for it, unless you're one of those people who likes talking to strangers. Weirdos. Yeah, exactly. exactly. If someone comes up to you on the street with no reason to talk to you, you're a bit like, okay, thank you, bye. But I think that uh, what's nice is that we do get to meet people and we have a conversation with people a little bit on the site first. That kind of warms them up. We then get them to book in for a consultation and we'll ask them to send over a few demos if they have already or haven't already. Then we'll have a conversation with them. And actually that first call unless they have explicitly sent in an email saying, this is what I want to go for. Can I just book in? That first conversation generally is not a sales conversation. It's 15 to 30 minutes, getting to know the person, showing that you're not trying to sell and you want to understand what it is that they are looking for and then understanding how you can best deliver that to them. Because the easiest sales, and this is something that took me a really long time to learn. The easiest sales are the ones where you don't really have to sell anything. People tell you what they want and what they want to achieve. And you say, yep, we can do that. You don't need to explain that you can do that to them. You don't have to talk through all the minutiae and the details of all that. You just say, yep, okay, that's what you want. We can do that. And this is how much it costs. If someone asks you for the price, first of all, that's a really, really good sign in terms of them wanting to buy because that's a purchasing signal. Once we've had that call, They'll make a decision that maybe they'll come back in a few weeks or, or even the next day they'll come back. Or sometimes they'll go, okay, how do we get started on that first call? But we don't push. But the single best piece of advice I was given about closing a sale, and this is face-to-face, and so we use FaceTime or Skype or whatever, so it is always a face-to-face meeting, is when someone asks you the price, you tell them the price, and then you stop talking. Also known as shut the f*** up. <laughs> Absolutely. Shut the f*** up. Do not say a word. Be very, very quiet. And... If you talk first, nine times out of 10, you will not get that sale. Because if you go, okay, it's $200, but also we can have this and and it's really good value and whatever. You seem desperate. You seem like you're trying to push the sale. You seem like the sale is more important to you than them as a person. And it's just a sort of number to you. But if you sit there and you say, right, it's $200. And there is a pause, uh, (laughs) which for a podcast isn't very entertaining. But for this example, it it is important. There is a pause. And in that pause, what they're doing is they're trying to go, why? Okay, well, if you've taken those three lines into consideration that we were talking about, trust in you, trust in the business, trust in the product. If those three things are as close to a 10 as possible, they're then going, okay, so what reasons do I have to not get this? This is all going on in their head in that pause. Well, I can't think of any. They've told me the price. That's a reasonable price. I need all of these things. They can do it. I trust that they can do it. Okay, I'll buy. And that's what happens. And if you interrupt that thought process by having to sort of justify the price that you've just given them, they'll go, oh, no, I, I, I need to talk to my husband. Or I need to talk to my wife or, you know, I, I need to. There's always going to be a reason why they're not going to do it. And I think that, uh, yeah, that honestly was a game changer for me and was so nerve wracking to do the first time I did it. I was terrified. I had my hands. So I, you know, you could just see my face on the video, but my hands were just out of frame, just shaking, sweating. Yeah. And I was there and I said, all right, it's $250. And they went, okay. And I went, okay, great. And it was like really, really happy that it had actually worked. And from that moment on, that's how I've always done it with those things. But don't do that until you know that all of those three things that I've mentioned are very, very close to a 10. Because otherwise, they're just going to go, nope, it's too much. And then you've sort of blown it at that point. 
Joe, I feel like this is a good place to kind of wrap things up. You've given us so much to consider here as audio engineers and studio owners and producers and mixing engineers. Is there anything that I didn't bring up that you would like to talk about? Anything that you think uh, maybe I missed out on or something worth mentioning here before we wrap this up? Well, there's two things. One that we did mention early on, which is that we are now hiring. Yes. There is a massive demand for online music production now because there are either people who are continuing to be paid while not being at work and so have a lot of time, people who are working from home or older people who are, you know, they wrote some songs back in the 80s and they want to relive the the glory days because they've been told by their government that they're not allowed to leave the house, which is what we've just had over here. And so there is real demand for it. And instead of the time and effort that you could spend on setting yourself up a profile on something like Fiverr or Sound Better or one of those sorts of things where actually you have to spend ages setting up a profile, doing loads of projects for no money to get your ratings up. And even then it's a full-time job just staying on there, checking for new projects coming in. With the online recording studio, working with us means that that whole side of things is taken care of. And you will just continue to be given a stream of work. All of our producers are are always in work. There's no one who's not working on anything at the moment because we just keep adding producers as and when we have the demand for them. So if you are interested in applying, all you need to do is send a short portfolio of three songs with a breakdown of just your process for those three songs. Whether you're an electronic producer, you know, specializing in electronic genres or a live producer. If you are a live producer currently, it works best if you are a multi-instrumentalist yourself because it means that you can take care of a lot of the instrumentation and you'll make the most money if you can play more stuff yourself rather than having to bring in session musicians. So if you are interested in applying, send uh, a three-track portfolio plus maybe a cover letter and a breakdown of your process on those songs to info at onlinerecordingstudio.com. And the second thing, now this is just a kind of fun thing that we're trying to do at the moment, which is because everyone is kind of stuck at home and I guess it's quite a British thing. We have this blitz spirit thing where, you know, we're all in this together, this community sort of aspect of of everything. I think that is is kind of part of, of, of British life, but we want this to be a thing that everyone around the world does. Now, we're all being told to social distance ourselves and that social distancing is what we need to be doing. So we've set this new challenge, which is called Social Distance Sing very funny huh listen listen to all the laughter yeah (laughs) my co-host would love that because he's the he's the dad pun guy i gave you one polite laugh when you first told me that and you said that's everyone's reaction it's just a single huh just yeah just the one just the one laugh and that's that's what we're going for it's that level of just like okay there is humor in that not a lot of humor but enough for me to register that that was technically a joke. So that, yeah. this is this thing. And, and basically it's kind of like the ice bucket challenge. Essentially what you have to do is you sing a song, you nominate three friends, you post it to social media using the hashtag social distance sing. And then they'll then nominate three people and, and they'll, they'll nominate three people. And exponentially, hopefully this thing can grow and we can all be sharing music. Now you can sing a song about anything that you want. Even if you're not a great singer, it's just a fun thing that we can all do at home while we're all in this and just show that there are so many people, so many musicians who are all in the same boat at the moment. And we are all in the same boat. Our producers are us, us as the, the management, you guys, everyone pretty much around the world is stuck at home trying to work out what to do at the moment. And so we might as well make it as fun as we can and also as worthwhile as we can. So I would say if you want to apply for a job, absolutely do get in touch. It's really nice to hear people's portfolios when they come in. And if you want to do something a little fun, do the social distance sing challenge. And uh, yeah, hopefully in, in a few months time, we'll be like, wow, that was the massive thing that everyone did. Two follow-up questions to that. Uh, one, are you also looking for session musicians? Because a lot of our audience, they offer remote 
instrument services or whatever? Or are you just looking for producers and, and engineers? Session musicians, I think, it would be useful. However, I think generally our producers have their own musicians that they call upon. Now, there will be undoubtedly some instruments that we're going to struggle with because either the instrumentalist doesn't have recording equipment at home or they don't know how to record themselves and would need that. So I would say if you are someone who plays an instrument that isn't particularly common in terms of people asking for it, then do get in touch. But if you are a guitarist or a bassist or a drummer, we're kind of covered at the moment if that's just your only service. But if you also produce, then absolutely get in touch too. Second question is, how do they actually contact you? So you just send us a portfolio to info at onlinerecordingstudio.com. If you wouldn't mind not going through the website, just because that complicates things, because you might start getting emails trying to sell you products, which goes against everything that I've just said. Hiring 101 dictates you follow his instructions. Anyone (laughs) who doesn't follow his instructions automatically disqualifies themselves from the hiring process. So don't go through his website. Email info at onlinerecordingstudio.com and uh, send him the portfolio of three songs. If you screw that up, you're not getting hired. That's quite right. I always find it funny when I get emails from people asking how to apply. <laughs> it's like, well, you have my email address. You've, you, you, they're like, they get an email being like, hi, hope this is a really formal email. How do I apply for this position? Well, you kind of just did in not doing it. And unfortunately, you're probably not going to get it because it, yeah. it, the answer was right in front of you the whole time. But yeah, get in touch. It's always really nice to hear portfolios. We will try and listen to as many as we can. But unfortunately, because we do get a lot of people who apply for stuff, we we might not be able to get back to you about your stuff. But we will always try to get back to as many people as possible. But there'll be a few of us listening in because we kind of are needing to bring people in now quite quickly. So if you are someone who is a great producer, good at talking with people, comfortable talking with people and and someone who people would consider to be likable and friendly and someone who you can be seen as confident and authoritative in what you're doing and also have a laugh with them as well, because it it is super fun, then absolutely get in touch and we'll listen to your portfolio. If we like what we hear, we'll ask you for an interview. And then following that, we'll basically probably get you started on a project later that day because they're they're, they're coming thick and fast at the moment. That's great. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here. I know how valuable your time is. So for anyone interested, there's your opportunity. Otherwise, this was a great episode for learning so many different aspects of marketing and sales and positioning and differentiation and how to have relationships. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> Bye-bye. So that is it for this episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. Plenty of stuff for you to take home and start implementing with your studios right now. Joe is obviously a very knowledgeable guy, very smart businessman. So hopefully we'll get him back on the podcast again in the future because I feel like I could talk to him for like six hours straight and he could teach this audience a lot of stuff. So thank you so much again, Joe, for coming on the podcast. So after talking to Joe and recording this episode, I had the idea uh, to see what sort of tools are out there that I think would help studios transition to a 100% online recording studio or mixing studio or mastering studio, anything that you're doing to where you're not face-to-face, you're not human-to-human anymore because of the social distancing and the quarantine, depending on what country you're in. So I put together a complete guide. It's like seven videos and 22 different tools that I go through and like six different categories of all these different tools that are going to help you shift your business online. So if you want that, you think it's going to be relevant for you right now, just go to the sixfigurehomestudio.com. It's literally the first thing you'll see on the page. And if you're listening to this episode, say weeks or months later, and it's not just on the sixfigurehomestudio.com anymore, then you can just go to the sixfigurehomestudio.com slash coronavirus. And I'll forward that URL to wherever this guide ends up in the future. Next week's episode, I'm not sure what it's going to be yet. I don't know if I'm going to do another interview or if Chris will be back and we can actually do a, uh, 
a dual episode, kind of going back to our normal podcast routine. But either way, you can be rest assured we're going to have another episode coming at you bright and early, 6 a.m. next Tuesday morning, rain or shine, virus or not, quarantine or not, this podcast still happens. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and happy hustling. Whoa.